So, Nate, we are in the midst of a run of guest episodes here on the podcast as we approach episode 100 and Mm. the two-year anniversary of the beginning of the podcast. And I thought we would drop a little bit of a different format in the middle. We have a couple different formats. We follow five for five. We have... Um, you know, our guest interviews, we have ones where you or me primarily are delivering expertise. There's some that we have that are more collaborative, but one that we haven't done in a while, I think over six months at this point is a live podcast. So we did a couple of those at the beginning of the year, and then we never did them again. And I thought, let's do something a little more unstructured, a little more loose. And so today we are going to do a Q&A episode where a number of questions have been pre-submitted and we're just going to kind of popcorn and even get the the, the live audience that's here uh, involved and just answer, answer a bunch of questions, just experimenting, trying something new this time. This isn't really around one particular topic. We're just answering a bunch of questions that got submitted by listeners. So welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I'm Daniel. This is Nate. This is the Seven Figure Music School podcast. And in this podcast, we help people run an effective school that is fun to run. And uh, we're going to jump into our questions. Are you ready for this, Nate? Yeah, love it. So happy to have everyone here. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Um, If you're you're listening, obviously, uh, the folks who are live here with us now don't know the questions are coming. But for those who are listening, you probably can look in the timestamps or the notes and and maybe even ping pong around on the various questions that are being asked, because those will be in the timestamps. You can check that out if there's one or two questions in particular that you're really interested in. But I wanted to start with a really good one. Uh, It was submitted by Zach, who I know has been listening to the podcast quite a bit uh, because I talked to him about it. Uh, He said... How do you pick the best second location for a studio? Are there specific things you look for in a new area when looking to launch a second location? What kind of market research does this involve? Nate, I'm going to ping pong this one right over to you because you've had to do this three different times. We've done a couple episodes. (laughs) We've done a couple episodes on a second location, but I do feel like this is coming from... uh, This one's phrased a little bit differently. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. To do is grow you know, additional revenue channels. You're essentially... You're on a growth path... Um, and you're looking to increase revenue, increase profitability, or maybe you're fine with your profitability, but you just want more of it. So i.e. you go from, you know, serving, say, 200 students in your current location to 400 students in two. And you're like, great. Love it. Okay. First thing I would just um, point out around the why, we did a nice episode on when to grow, why to grow, how to grow. Um, maybe we can pull up that app number in a, in a bit, but... First thing I would say is whenever we're looking at growth opportunities, and this falls um, totally into that fourth bucket, Zach, of the new business bucket, I ask myself, A, am I capitalizing on my strength already right now? Right? So that's going to get to answering your first part of the question, which is what kind of questions do we ask around a second location? B, am I working with a uh, known product suite, or am I introducing something brand new? And if I'm looking at something new, let's say your second location is going to be like, I've thought about a second location in Brooklyn that's only mini keys and jam band 101, only serving groups ages four to eight with no private lesson, not even a community room performance space that like we're known for. So that to me actually is sort of a almost kind of a new opportunity where we would have to brand specifically to that type of new location. So when we're saying, hey, I want to open this second location, are you planning on introducing new products there into your product suite? If you are, then you need to have more patience with the growth path on that new location. In my 
in my estimation. Whereas if I opened up a Brooklyn Music Factory second location and it had the exact same product suite and let's say even the same layout as our current one, nine studios plus a community room performance space, I would say, hey, I already know what this is. So I can be more predictive in terms of the growth path. Okay, so now specifically to answer your questions, um, how to pick the best second location for a studio. So we talked a little bit about this before around knowing your demographic well, right? So for example, at Brooklyn Music Factory, I, have, I know exactly where we get our customers. I have a zip code map for those customers. You know, I have an address spreadsheet for those. I know where they're coming from within Brooklyn. Um, and I know where the highest percentage of customers are coming from, i.e. that zip code or in, in, in the BK, it's going to be more neighborhoody than zip codey. But you understand, it's like a neighborhood. So then from within that neighborhood, I'm saying, okay, well, what is the demographic in this neighborhood? And I'm getting a very clear sense of predominantly who makes up that neighborhood. And then I'm going to go there and I'm going to say, okay, now I have a fairly decent picture of who my clients are currently. And I'm going to look for that next location that mirrors it as closely as possible. And this may seem sort of obvious to say out loud, but you know who you serve now. So you don't want to all of a sudden take the risk of trying to serve a whole new demographic with the same product suite. Because you probably put in so much effort around your... Um, defining your purpose, your why, delivering a message of what you're going to promise um, in, in that lesson experience in that seven to 10 year musician's journey. You put in all this effort around that, but then if you then go to a new market and decide you're going to have a different demographic, well, then that promise and that product suite may not be a good market fit at all, right? So if if I were you, like, let's say we were hanging out together and trying to identify that location for BMF, right? I would, I would be hyper-specific that I'm only looking right now in terms of the history of this company to opening a location that's going to serve as close to the same demographic with the same product suite as I already know right now. Because I've spent 13 years developing that, right? And I've had to say no to so many customers over the years because we couldn't serve and deliver on the promise, so now we know who we deliver on the promise with. So I would want to replicate that two, three, four more times. And I'll literally do that. This may happen in Brooklyn, but I'm only going to go to certain neighborhoods within Brooklyn or Manhattan, right? I'm not going to go anywhere because New York is a huge place, right? It's not, it's not the demographic isn't identical. So um, maybe I'll, maybe I'll uh, skip um, well, maybe I'll skim the next two and then we'll move on to the next question in the interest of time. Well, I actually want to jump in here, Nate. Oh, Daniel, do it. Yeah. So the, the next part of the question and and to to actually say to follow up on something Nate just said there, we have done three episodes on opening a new location, episode 71 and 72. That was a two part. And then all the way back on episode 17. So those are three mm. that folks mm. could go back and, and reference. But part of Zach's question was, are there specific things you look for in a new area when looking to launch? And what kind of market research does this in, involve? That probably could be its own series of episodes. There is a tool that I want to show everyone here. Um, I'm just going to turn this on. This is called, this is, you can find lots of maps like this. This one is just called justicemap.org. Uh, this just shows income levels. Um, 
And this is actually yep. my area. And specifically, I live in this little sliver right here. Um, this is where I live. What when when Nate earlier and of course for those who are listening you can't see this but you could go to YouTube and check out the visual version of this or you could just go to justicemap.org and look at it in your own area. When I mapped where all my students came from, so I literally uh, there's another tool can't remember what it is right now, but I could take all the addresses that I pull off my uh, invoice software, pull all the addresses, drop them in there, and I could it would put a pin on the map for all all of my students. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 80% of my students were in this blue area mm. and this area up here, which are the two highest income areas in my area. So there are implications for this when thinking about putting a second location somewhere. There are implications for this when you're thinking about where, you, where to spend your advertising dollars. Yep. Not that. Uh, so when I would advertise specifically in areas, I would use tools like this to figure out, well, where are the people who are likely going to say yes to me? Because in this area over here, uh, this area over here has three times the population of my area here. This is called Franklin Township. This is called Perry Township. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though I would advertise in this area, my Google ads touched here, I would rarely get calls or form fills from here. And with the ones that I did, they would ask about price. I would tell them and they'd go away. I, I rarely signed, I, just I rarely signed up people in this area. So it wasn't as if I was trying to avoid that area. I still advertised over there. I just didn't get as much response. And it wasn't often as productive as when I advertised in these areas. So that is a tool where you could uh, go and, and and kind of check out your area and and know the best places to to market, advertise, and potentially put a second location. Daniel, can I add something to that map? Sure. So yeah. if you look down there over to the left, you saw Smith Valley, which geographically may be far. Yep. Right. So I, if Daniel in a one studios um, group lesson program, it wouldn't have been appropriate for him to go there. But in Zach's question, when he's looking for a second location. Yes. It's very appropriate. Let me put out a couple of other things um, just on that tip that I've just sort of some of the benefits of multi-locations, et cetera. Um, You know, we've done some really nice episodes with Jeff Homer, who has ensemble Mm. schools. And one of the benefits he talks about, Zach, is the idea of being able to hire. It improves your hiring funnel and your benefits package because now you're bringing in these teachers that you might only be able to book. Let's take Daniel's example in um, Franklin Township, you might only be able to book them three days a week there, but then you can put them the other two days a week in Smith Valley. Now you're giving a different kind of offer. And you and I both know that offer is a, is really important in your hiring funnel, right? When you're recruiting A-list teachers in and you come back to them and say, let me give you 1.5 days of work, oof, mer, mer, right? It's really hard. You have to have a hell of a pitch to get them to stay with you, Right. But if you could offer four days and you split between two locations and between you and I, that's one of the reasons why I'm so attracted by this line of thinking you're on, because I've really thought, hmm, open a second location over here and a third location over here. And it and I can see it radically improving our hiring process and our especially our teacher retention, which, as we all know, every listener knows here, you want high student retention. What do you need? High teacher retention. Right. So you're building a culture of teachers that want to stay with you for, you know, three, five, 
10 years. Or in the case of what do we just do ASM Aurora? We did a, we got a great episode with an owner of a school in Ohio. She's got teachers there that have been there for what, like 20 years. Mm-hmm. Dig it. Yeah. That'd be amazing. Okay. Um, One last thing, Nate, I just go. wanted to follow up on, on your comment on the map. Uh, I said 80% of my students came from that one area. A ton of students actually came from Smith Valley. They were willing to commute all the way out to me. And I did actually advertise over there. Yeah, it's so interesting. I, and I love that. Hold on. I got a ping pong right off that because we had a school owner who was interested in moving. They weren't. She wasn't opening a second location. She just needed to move like 12 miles because she wanted better rent. And so one of the things that Daniel and I suggested she do was literally reach out to what I what we call it BMF, our royal families, the ones that are deeply engaged and say, hey, yeah. I'm thinking about moving over here. Would you consider driving seven extra miles to go to this awesome new home? So sort of, it's not exactly the same as what Daniel said, but it's linked in terms of that customer research, just being willing to ask, hey, like, would you actually just come from Smith, uh, what was it, Smith Valley? Or should I consider opening a second location there? Daniel, what do you say we go on to the next question in the interest of time? Because we've got a lot of good ones. Yeah. So this one was submitted by Rossi. And she said, what would you say to this mother? Any tips? They came in for a free trial of our group lesson program. um, And what the mother said apparently was, could we wait to start until we have a piano in our home? Which at the time was about six weeks away uh, from the point at which the trial happened. And she said, can we stop after, and this was the the part that was, I felt the reason why this studio owner was asking. The mother yeah. said, could we stop after one semester if kids want to try something else and then restart again? I don't schedule my kids with too many things at once, just one weekday activity at a time. So wouldn't want to do piano along with other things during the school year. Thanks. <laughs> um, so I feel like at the base of this question, really what the studio owner is asking is, what what would you say to this person? And I think the subtext there as well is, was, what do we do? We even want this person in the studio? So Nate, right. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna have you start first. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna go first because I think you hit it on the head with that subtext. Um, we've all gotten these. We get these. I mean, it's it's opening day at BMF when we're recording this coming up in a week, right? And uh. You know, we're absolutely going to see comments like this. Um, I would say that we need to become really good at being very clear on what the journey of a successful musician is in our program. And that starts with an initial commitment by family, by our program, right? We're committed, just like you commit to having your teachers show up consistently, not rescheduling lessons, all these things that we know to be true to have a, to follow through on our commitment. We're asking that family to make the same thing. Do they need an instrument? Yes, they need an instrument. Do they need to buy a real piano? No, they don't need to buy a real piano. Of course not. They can buy a little Casio mini micro keyboard to start for the first season at BMF. They'll be totally fine, right? I mean, it depends on age a bit, but, but up to age nine, no problem. Like the barrier to resistance can be, I mean, the barrier to entry can be very low when it comes to gear, right? But they do need to make a commitment to show up starting at the beginning of the season. And no, like we can't already pre-plan you taking a month-long break in the winter because who knows why, because you're already going to be disrupted. 
like the the likelihood that you can succeed in our program, which is a songwriting program that has 12 seasons, six years of songwriting parties, the likelihood that that'll happen goes way down if in the first season you drop out for four or five weeks. So, Daniel, I'm going to I'm going to ping pong it back to you because I'm, I'm guessing you're saying something similar. But mm. but I want to just um, frame this in terms of useful um, tactics for us as sort of marketing salespeople and enrollment people, which is that we need to come up with language that works for us, that we can consistently say over and over every time we get this question. We do not want to be making it up on a case by case basis. Right. Just don't. Yeah. What do you got, Daniel? Thoughts? The only thing I would add, and then we can move on from this question, would be I would kindly tell the parent what the expectation is, just like Mm -hmm. you said there. And then I would follow that up by asking them them why they're considering it if they don't intend to be committed. Now, I wouldn't put it in those words, but I would ask a, a gentler version of that. And then ask them if they know and understand that their kids are going to enjoy this more if they have an uninterrupted experience, that they're they're building a skill. A lot of times those questions will surface really what's going on with that parent. And a lot of times those questions lead to a great conversation that then could lead to the parent actually becoming more committed. I don't believe that people will always maintain a fixed mindset. I believe in the ability for people to change their mindset. I can ask questions that will help the parents see what they're what they're actually doing and doing it in a way that feels less threatening than saying, oh, you're wrong. Oh, you shouldn't be thinking that way. Oh, you shouldn't do that. Yeah. So I think a, a well-timed question, the right question can lead the parent maybe to become a great student. And I had students that stayed in my studio for years where at the beginning, the parent on the surface seemed a little flaky, but I helped them become not that. So when you hear, when you hear a question like this, don't immediately write them off. Understand that depending on how you interact with them and the frame that you set with them, it's very, very possible that they might end up changing their mind. So just a thought there. I love that, Daniel, because also we were th- we were talking about this with my daughter who's in college right now. And one of the pieces of advice that these this faculty member gave to her was every semester, make friends with one professor, just one hmm. show up to her office hours, um, you know, make an effort, because even if you only do that 50 percent of the time at the end of four years, you will have four relationships that you can lean on when it comes to the rest of your life. And we all know when the rest of your life starts after college is when it actually, you really need those friendships. So to Daniel, to your point, these parents, when they understand through Daniel's uh, line of questioning and helping them change their mindset, when they realize that you're actually have their interest at heart, then they view you as a relationship that they can develop over time. And we all know as owners that our students' journey isn't just like us. It's not like this smooth growth path, right? It's all fun and games when they're like six to nine 
Then they, then they, you know, 10-ish, they move to middle school. Then when puberty hits, everybody knows what that looks like if you've been teaching for your whole career. It's rough, right? <laughs> so you, you're going to be having a lot of conversations about how to navigate this person that you care deeply about through some of the roughest patches of their life, right? So I love this. I love this line, Daniel. It's not like we're writing people off. We're just framing it in a mutually nurturing relationship where we want to benefit this person, but we got to set them up for success. And Lisa writes in here, agreed, we need to educate the parents. Yeah, it's totally unfair to think that these parents understand what the growth path is going to be in music lessons. Hmm. Right? Yes. They, don't, they, don't, they don't get that. I, just like I don't understand the growth path when my daughter wants to become a chemist. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> you know? Okay, That's Daniel, funny. what do we got next? Yeah, well, right before we jump to the next question, which I think you're going to be really interested in, Nate, because uh, it's about you, uh, I just want to say here that it would be very, very helpful if you're enjoying the podcast, if you're getting a lot of value out of it, uh, go to growyourmusicstudio.com slash 7FMSReview. We'd love for you to put a review in the podcast, and there are instructions on that page on how you can leave it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts. And um, yeah, we haven't asked for this in a while. And I thought this might be a good time to do it. Nice. Let me jump on to the next question. It's a little bit vague. So I think Nate, we might even have to talk through the angle to take on this even right here, right now. Uh, but what they wrote in was, I would like to know about the BMF program that takes them through the levels. And if I remember correctly, it took students about seven years to go through it. So I mm. think what would be a good angle to take on that, Nate, just even talking about that? Because I'm curious as your thoughts. Yeah. Um, so let's take the just sort of literal version first, and then we'll we'll go deeper than that. So let's say you have a, like we worked with um, a client who was into the Royal Conservatory Method. So that has a very clear path, right? I grew up as a Suzuki you know, piano student. Hmm. It was like there were books, they were color-coded. You could just lay them books out and see Nate's path, right? Um, so in a literal sense... We, as experts in music education, can assess how long it takes for a student to move through the program, right? So, and parents, you know, parents, basically, they need to understand that there actually is a roadmap, that you actually have charted a course for their child, and you can point to a, you know, the destination at the end of the, at the, end of the trip, Right. So the question is, well, I understand it takes seven to 10 years to get through it. So when students start out at Brooklyn Music Factory, let's say they're four or five years old, we get we'll get we'll get five or 10 inquiries each week right now because it's a busy enrollment season from kids that age. We send all of them into our mini keys, which is our group class for four and fives. And it's essentially, you know, as we know, it's a game based program but it just gets them to begin to consider the fluencies of rhythm, melody, and harmony. They do it through songwriting. Yes, they get their hands on a three-string lute guitar. Yes, they get their hands on a keyboard. But the point is, is we send them all right there. So that's already one to two years of their journey. They're in mini keys. Then from there, we strongly encourage them to go for one to two years in either our group piano class, which is club keyboard, or jam band 101, which is a continuation of that mini keys group songwriting program. Dig it? So now they're like three to four years into their process at BMF. 
Then at that point, we all know what happens is parents are like, I really want my child to get one-on-one attention. Right? I dig it. You know, I have two daughters. I'm like, I want my kid to have some time alone with a pro, getting some real attention. So they all ask for a private lesson. So that we strongly encourage them to wait until the student is eight or nine to start on private lessons. Um, Why? Because the students that are incredibly successful in our program, the ones that have been there for seven to 10 years, they all started in mini keys. Basically, all of them. And these kids now have huge ears. They can transpose to like six different keys. They can play all the chord, common chord progressions. I'm, I'm speaking as a pianist here. They can play inversions. They can do great stuff by the time they're in middle school, but they started in mini keys. So then they're in the private lesson program, say at age eight, and that is 12 seasons. So 12 semesters of songwriting parties. And each season is like one of those Suzuki books. It's a specific level with a specific set of challenges. And we hope for a very specific um, kind of growth on the instrument. So from a literal standpoint, like that's the roadmap for our students. Like if you guys came and visited BMF, I would point to a student in the community room and be like, she started in Jam Band 101 and now she's on the songwriting party beginner level four. And she's played 10 gigs in her life so far. So it's very specific, it's very literal. We have student examples of success stories, right? So when we ask about why it takes seven to 10 years, on the outset, you're like, wait, what? My student's gonna be there for 10 years? That seems like an eternity when you're four or five. You know what I mean? (laughs) But if you have clarity, Daniel, on what the roadmap is, right? Then it feels totally normal to have that conversation with a parent, even though that parent who you're talking to cannot actually even imagine her daughter as a 14-year-old. Yeah. Right? Daniel, thoughts on that? Yeah, this is where the seeds of retention are laid by presenting such a strong, logical plan and giving people a reason to commit I'd love to get follow-up questions from people here. Um, maybe put those in the chat or potentially even uh, unmute yourself. But while you all are thinking about what those questions might be, Nate, during that whole journey mm. in uh, of those students, uh, there is a tool that they're using alongside their lessons, like mm. Jam Band 101 and the private lessons. And uh, right. that tool just happens to be one of the sponsors of this podcast. I'd like you to talk a little bit more about it. Yeah, so at the foundation, they started mini keys at big music games. Um, if you want to start playing games yourself, all you have to do is go to bigmusicgames.com backslash 7FMS. Anywho, yeah, it's a game-based approach. All those games are, for our listeners who grew up or, you know, as musicians, maybe you went to conservatory for music, they're just kidified ear-training music theory games. That's all they really are. It's not like groundbreaking new ideas. It's just ideas that work, which is get a kid starting to develop her ears at age four and then have your mind blown by what they can do by the time they're 14. For most of us, we started these games, not as games, but as exercises, and we didn't actually even start until college. That was true for me. Yeah, yeah, it was true. Dude, it was totally... I know I did AP Harmony in high school, so it started there, but I was getting, you know, it was 
ass kicking hard for me. And it wasn't really until college. Honestly, it wasn't until after college, Daniel, that I started really putting in the reps. Yeah. You know, in my ears. So yeah, bigmusicgames.com. Check it out, please. I'm going to read this one. This I think this is a pretty quick answer. I might even just handle this one. Uh, Susan asked, how to maintain SEO on a website and maintain Google ads? How often do we need to check keywords? Also, how to know we updated Google ads with their new rules and changes? So I'm going to talk briefly about this. It is an important topic. I do talk about it every once in a while on the podcast, but there might be a different angle here on this. Uh, to maintain SEO on your website, I don't recommend any studio owner do this on their own. I would say get a good developer that will make sure that you are at least compliant with the rules that Google puts out, that you're at least compliant with what Google's looking for when they uh, come, uh, when they send their robot crawlers to your site. One thing you can do to know whether or not that that is, whether your site is compliant, is you can just go to Google search, type in Google search, free SEO analyzer or website SEO analyzer. There are so many free tools out there where you'll just enter your URL and it will do an analysis and give you a grade on that. There are so many, I'm not even going to bother. Like if you just go to Google and type that in, you'll find those. That is the extent to which I think a studio owner should handle their own SEO. I will make this point. I don't make a lot of friends when I say this, but I'm not interested in making friends. I'm more interested in the truth. <laughs> it sounds weird, but <laughs> here we go anyway. Um, if you are working with someone who's doing your SEO and they're charging you like 200 a month, 400 a month, it's not worth it. Any, any SEO that is truly going to be helpful for you is going to cost you at least a thousand bucks a month. Um, if you've got a developer that says they also do SEO and it's like a little add on that they have, I'm not saying that they're disreputable or whatever, but they're probably not doing much. Um, and the difference between something like that, which a lot of times I can't even tell the effect of that when I've had a client who says that they have that going on and then I look at their actual traffic, the difference between that and someone who's actually doing hardcore heavy duty SEO and they're good at it is I'm just going to point this out. Uh, there's a client of mine who went from 20 leads a month to 70 leads a month in about a six month period, like literal form fills on her website because of uh, the SEO guy she was working with. That's what a good SEO could do and it's worth every penny. So I'll just end my thoughts on SEO there. In terms of Google ads, Google did make some major changes, two major changes within the last year. Fortunately, at this point, Google is still, if you have an account that was running ads prior to the major changes last year and some of the minor changes this year, if you have ads that have been running during that time, you are grandfathered in. You cannot make your ads like you used to, but they will still work. And I have clients who I have access to their Google accounts and they're running the same account that they have been for the last five years and their numbers have stayed roughly the same. So if you have a legacy account, it'll still work fine. Uh, one of the questions here was how often do we need to check keywords? I will just say that I would sometimes go months without ever actually logging into my Google account once I had it optimized and running really, really well. So it this does not have to be something that you do quite often. However, if you are in a suburban area or an area where there's a lot of competition, it might behoove you to check it more frequently, especially now 
Because basically I'm comparing now to when I was really running Google Ads hot and heavy in the late 2010s, uh, mid to late 2010s. The game has changed somewhat. I probably couldn't get away with that now, going months without checking it. But the main thing that you would want to check on a somewhat frequent basis, you know, maybe one, at least once a month, maybe a couple times a month, is to actually go into your master keyword list and see if you're even showing up. If competition has increased their bids, you might have some error messages on your keyword list where it says you aren't even being shown because your bid's too low. And it'll literally be a warning there. And they'll tell you what you have to raise your bid to to beat the competitors who've raised their bids around you. That's one thing I would do. I just check check to make sure that your keywords are actually even showing up. The second thing would be to check to make sure the relevance of your searches is still high. So you can go in at the ad group level or the campaign level, and you can actually check to see the terms for which you're, you are showing up even. And you need to check to make sure that what people are typing in and then your ads are getting shown for is actually relevant to you. So if you're teaching piano lessons and you're charging for it, and you go into your keyword list and you see that one of the things that someone typed in that made your ad show up was the word free piano lessons. They literally typed that in and then your ad showed up. Well, that's not a very good search for you because if that person were to see your ad and then click it, they're probably not the kind of person that maybe is going to pay the rates that you're asking for. So what I would do in that situation is I would go into the negative keyword list and add free as a negative so that if someone types in the word free anywhere in their search in conjunction with the word piano lessons, they won't even show your ad. So those are the two things that I would do on a somewhat regular basis. Check your budget or check your bids and check to make sure the relevance of the searches that you're showing up for is, is high. Um, that's the two things. Let's see. I think that's where I'll end on that one. Any follow-up questions to that, Nate or anyone here? No, I would just, I'm seconding what you're saying. I went, I'm just going to be honest here. I went uh, 10 years trying to do SEO in-house, trying to manage our Google ads in-house. I think Daniel, when you and I started first working together, we were doing it in-house. And then I finally was like, what am I doing? And I went, I outsourced it. And I spend between, like Daniel said, we spend between 800 and 12 or 13, $1,400 on our SEO, Google ads manager. And then I just have a working knowledge of how to turn up or down my spend as needed on Google ads. Like we um, are in a heavy enrollment period currently. So the ad spend is going up, but I will turn it down rapidly within three weeks and it'll be down to just a trickle. And mm -hmm. then I'll turn it way back up when we get to the holidays moving into the spring season. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I will turn it up only on summer camp because we will sell our summer camp out in about two months. So that'll be like hmm. 280 enrollments or whatever it is, 300 students. But I will turn that spigot on full blast as long as needed. Daniel, getting back to your point, because I trust that they're built right hmm. and that they're effective. And why do I trust that they're built right and they're effective? Because... The leads increased back to Daniel's story and the conversions increased and the amount of time and effort we needed to put into marketing and sales decreased. And yep. what does that lead to? Getting to spend time on what you care more about, which is taking care of your students. Yeah. The only thing I would add to that is 
I think for someone like Nate, who's running a school the size of BMF, I don't think it makes sense for Nate to be running his own Google ads. He shouldn't be in there doing that. The the size, the complexity of their programs, all the things that, that they're, uh, all the different programs that they're promoting. Uh, there's a level of complexity there in the account setup in running it and managing it and managing the conversion rates for it. That just makes it not a great use of his time because Nate also has all that complexity to manage in terms of his team and his staff and and all the other factors that go into running a school of that size. I still think if you are a single teacher studio, I still think it makes sense to educate yourself well enough on that to do it yourself because the complexity is a, an order of magnitude lower and the cost to have someone do it well is probably prohibitively high for the outcome that you'll get from it. And I do still think that Google ads is uh, not as complex. Sorry, let me rephrase that. Google ads isn't very complex. It's something that one could learn and learn to do well within a month or two. That's why we have a training on it. Mm. And because of the outsized return you could get from it, I still think it's a smart thing for school owners to do it. I know I've been saying that for eight years, but I just want to maintain again that I still think for a smaller studio or smaller school, still probably makes sense for them to handle it in-house uh, simply because of all the factors I just mentioned. So this isn't over against what, over against what Nate said. Uh, it's it, it's the nuance of what Nate said, because I agree, Nate, you shouldn't be doing it yourself. Uh but Joe, piano teacher who has 30 students right now and a lot of time and wants to get to 60 students, it probably makes sense to invest in a course where he can learn to do that so that he can have a full studio for the next 10 years. And what I will tell you is that because I did that, I mean, it changed my career. Um, and I went from struggling to maintain 40, 50 students to getting like 200 lead requests a year where I could just have the my pick of whoever got in touch with me. And that was on a very small ad budget. So those are my thoughts. Yeah. Well, it gets, it, it, it's a good segue to a couple follow-up comments, questions around the previous question on that seven, seven year journey. Um, <clears throat> Scott wrote in, how long did it take to develop the program that I was describing? I wanted to say that um, Scott, when I was able to let go of some of these marketing efforts, as Daniel was talking about, when I trusted a sales team to take the enrollments, et cetera, I was able to focus on the area that honestly matters the most to me. Like I'm definitely a teacher first and foremost, and I'm a curriculum designer and that's what I love to do. I love to make these games. And so we, um, uh, Roberto pointed out, made also a comment here in the chat where he's like, we use a hundred plus different board games in the lessons and it's a massive hit. Kids love them. Um, the deal with developing your own curriculum is that A, you have to have a mad passion for it because you're going to lose a lot of time and money on it. Right. So you get, it's got to be heart centered first. You got to be like, I'm all about it. Like I'm in my, I've, I think I mentioned this before, but like, I come out of my spinning class at the gym and I quickly grab my phone and start writing it in my Evernote about how I could imagine a 45 minute game for eight year olds where you press play and it never ends. And 45 minutes later, the game is done and then the class is dismissed. 
like my spin class, which is the only way that I actually survive for 45 minutes is because it never ends. They never let up. Dig it. But that's the thing is, is it totally is what is is super exciting for me. So number one, you got to love it. Number two, back to Roberto's comment around using board games, you have to be able to link your curriculum choices to the promise you're making to families. So if you're playing board games in lessons and you're saying we have a fun first approach and we use these board games, they can't be used as they so often are as a distraction for a kid who's maybe not into the piano and you're just trying to get through the 45 minutes. They can't be used because you can't think of anything else to put in your lesson architecture. Right? They have to be very intentional because otherwise what's happening is you're missing on the fundamental opportunity, which is developing a approach that, cre- that retains a student for their entire learning process, right? And when you start to really commit to that idea, when you start to imagine that six-year-old as a 16-year-old and that they're still in your community and you're nurturing them, they're not still your student. By the way, can we differentiate there? They're in your community. They're in your program. This is very different. When, if you think of yourself as the solution to this student, then you're not thinking, in my, in my degree, you're not thinking correctly. Right? You are part of a community. It takes a village to grow these people. So developing this program, Scott, we've been developing it since day one, literally in this studio. I'm in my home studio right now. But this is where we started having what we call piano summits. And all we did was meet for hours and talk about ways we could gamify a piano lesson. And we started here on, in, on our opening year, whatever, 13, 14 years ago. And we continue to develop games every single month because it's the foundation of our program. It's a fun, fluency-first approach. Right? It's not just fun. There's a very specific reason why we lead with fun. Okay, Daniel, what do we got next? we we got to try to roll through our questions. Yeah, for sure. So I'm going to read Kelly's question here. Nice. My student... No, my studio currently has 120 students, two teachers and two TAs. So Kelly is actually mm-hmm. running. Kelly's actually running the Piano Express program. That's one of the sponsors oh. of this podcast. Uh, just go to grouplessons.com. You can learn all about it. It is a revolutionary group curriculum that is really easy to set up in your studio. Very easy to train your teachers to run it for you or run it yourself, whether you're in a small studio or a big commercial studio space. Uh, And what Kelly's saying here is my goal is to double this, but I'm growing faster than I can keep up with. I don't want to slow my growth. So I'm looking for resources to get my systems in order like now so I can continue to provide a quality experience to families and staff. I'm struggling with scheduling, being responsive to families and payroll. And I really appreciate that you specifically wrote down the the systems that you're struggling with because that really helps us to focus in on what to talk about versus guessing. Um, so starting with scheduling, responsive families, and payroll. Nate, do you want to jump on any of those to begin with? Mm, responsive to families. Yep. I'm going to, I'm going to, Kelly, I'm going to give you a tactic. We're testing out at BMF right now. Okay. And I like to keep it all lo-fi. So just a Google sheet. Basically, mm-hmm. I've got a new salesperson coming on who's supporting Jessica, who's not only my wife, but also basically runs the whole program and enrolls everyone. So she's really dr- running BMF, you know, and she's our main salesperson, but she can't do it alone anymore. Right? She absolutely needs a sales team with her. And so 
we've brought on another teacher who's doing sales part-time when, she, when she's not teaching voice piano lessons. But, but Jessica's not really a trainer in sales systems, right? She's been doing it for a long, long time. She's busy. So she's not really in a position to be training uh, Natalie in sales. So what I've developed for Natalie is a simple, what I call um, a touch point spreadsheet, seven touch points. And basically left to right, it's, it just says, okay, over on the left, I want you to put the new lead, the parent contact information with the phone number. And then each column is just like email, phone call. From a phone call you pull down, did you talk to them or did you leave a voicemail? Next email, next email. As they move through that sales system, as I move through the touch points, um, I'm asking Natalie to update every cell. So then it's like email and then text. Did you send a text follow-up after you sent that email? Hey, in case you didn't see my email, just wanted to give you the link to pay the deposit. The point is, Kelly, is that all I'm trying to do with Natalie is get her to find a consistent, repeatable system where she's reaching out and having seven touch points with every new lead, right? It's a combination of email, phone, text. And the reason why I want her to do that is not only because it's an essential sales practice, it's essential to following up consistently, but it's way easier for her to just open up the spreadsheet and be like, okay, when did, did I, okay, I sent the third email, but I haven't texted yet, right? The last, by the way, the last cell of that row is just, did you win or lose the lead, right? Win or lost, that's it. So, but really what we're trying to do, and I'm setting up a meeting with her in like two to three weeks, is we're looking for trends. Back to your comment, Kelly, I'm struggling with follow-up. Well, you're struggling with follow-up because you're probably looking at each family as an individual case study. They're not. They're just a parent who needs information and needs consistent communication from you or somebody else. So you're looking, eventually I'm going to sit down and I'm look at this spreadsheet. There'll be like 30 or 50 leads over on the left. And I'm going to look at what she did and we're going to look at which uh, converted and which didn't. And we're going to look for trends in her actions. Oh, turns out if you always text after an email or always text after a follow a voicemail, you have a highly like a higher likelihood of enrolling this family. And so that's all I'm going to open with Daniel is just a simple system to ensure that you have enough touch points with every new lead that you either win or lose them at the end of it but you're not making it up case by case. Daniel, what do you got? I was just going to ask Kelly uh, for, uh, this is one of those questions where it's really in the nuances. So Kelly, if you feel comfortable, and I can cut this out if not, um, maybe push back on that a little bit. Like what would your next question be about that? Mm. Or uh, um, what would, uh, yeah, what would what would your natural follow-up be to that? Huh, I'm actually having more trouble being responsive to my current families. I have oh. I have a spreadsheet. Um, it doesn't work great. It's color coded and it's kind of a mess. It needs to be caught up. I did Daniel's marketing course some years ago, um, mm. so I've got an onboarding sheet. Um, it's more now that I've got so many students and I'm teaching all the time. Parents are coming in. They're asking me questions. I'm trying to teach. Um, they're sending me a lot of emails. They're texting me. I'm emailing them. They don't read the emails. <laughs> No, no, they don't. I was, I was just listening to the podcast about um, uh, do I is my job to nag my teachers, 
And I immediately thought, is it my job to nag my families? Yes. And so I'm doing the podcast. I haven't <laughs> finished it yet, but I'm getting some good tips in there. Interesting. So I think, what are you hoping will happen? I'm hoping you say, I have enough students, I can hire an admin person. <laughs> that's that's what I'm hoping. <laughs> yeah. And what would you want the admin person to do for you? Uh, sit in the room that I'm sitting in right now, which is looking out into my waiting room and on my busy days, take care of all those things for me. Interesting. And and I want the algorithm that says when you are making this much money and when you're netting this much, you can afford an admin person. Interesting. The, okay. the teaching I love, the money, I don't I don't love the money part. Yes. Okay. So I don't think there's any one number i think you're right in thinking what's the formula because what i would say is this and this look this is a little bit unorthodox but i had a personal family budget right and anything over that i got to do whatever i wanted to do with that money right and so for me when my studio because i was teaching group lessons when i got over a certain number of students we didn't really adjust our lifestyle up. We, I was just making the extra money. And so what I did was put it into better equipment. And then at a certain point, I just said, well, like you, you know, I spend this many hours every month on invoicing. I spend this many hours every month, like onboarding or offboarding students. Like it is a process. If I do this really well, I spend this many hours every month keeping track of data within the studio. I spend this many hours every month. Well, not hours, but this amount of time, like just even calling in the Faber 411 number to order books. And so my thought was, how many hours is that? And is there a person out there that is looking for a job where maybe it isn't even part-time, maybe it isn't even quarter-time, where they're literally just looking for 20 or 30 hours a month because that's all I need. Now, I chose to do this virtually where, that you know, a virtual position. If you have someone that you want to be in there that can just sit the desk, so to speak, then you're going to need to budget for that differently. Uh, and my recommendation would be to figure out what that number is, figure out the minimum number of days that you want them in there, and if that number is acceptable to you, I think you move forward on it. I think one of the things I regret, and I, you know, I, I put that in quotes a little bit because I don't believe in regrets, but I think I regret waiting as long as I did to have an admin for my studio. I, I had the money to do it way before I actually did it. I think I just waited too long. I think the thing that held me back was I didn't think there would be someone who only wanted to work four or five hours a week for me. That was my mistake. But there, there are people out there that that's all they're looking to do, you know, and I, I, again, I had a virtual admin. It sounds like you want something a little bit different, but, uh, you know, I know, mm -hmm. I know how much happier I got when I literally was just like, I have lessons starting at 3.20 PM. And I started thinking about the studio at 3.15 PM, not at, you know, one or noon. And then when I was done at night, 7.35, maybe I had one or two follow-up emails I needed to send because I wrote a note down during the lesson time, follow up with this kid's parent for this reason. You know, like I noticed this in the lesson or student had a little bit of trouble focusing today, just wanted to follow up on that. 
that sort of thing. And, and that was it. That was the extent of it. And I, and I had just slowly but surely systematized everything that I was doing in the studio and handed it off to Alicia, who I've mentioned before in the podcast. So thoughts on that? Is that helpful? It is. Yes. Thank you. Cool. 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 Yeah. You know, um, Kelly, the Alicia story is a great one because um, Daniel's so good at like being crystal clear about um, you know, he has this, you know, I think you've talked about it before, Daniel, the sort of this, his system he follows, which is definition of done. Um, so it's like simple. I've seen these just simple G docs. Like this is what it looks like to answer this type of question from a parent. This is your response. Um, this is our school calendar. Cause the thing about Daniel's story that I think is so important, Kelly, and it probably resonates with you cause it resonates with me. I don't have any problem like sending home that email to the parent with a video of my student sharing a couple of nuances from within the classroom. The problem I have is answering questions around when the next songwriting party is, or if school's closed or all these, or billing. Like, I don't want to answer any of that stuff. You want to know why? Because I really don't actually care about it. I just care about your kid. You know, I just want to work on educating your child, which gets back to Daniel's point. Yes, he would write emails at the end of the day, but they would always be referencing in-class experiences. Mm -hmm. So systemizing the answers, I mean, a great place to start, Kelly, is just look at all the emails in your box. What are the questions being asked? What are, and make a 10 frequently asked question. You write the answers. Yeah. And uh, the last thing I was going to say to Daniel's point is oftentimes parents of your students are a great first place to start for very part-time work. Mm. That's a great place. You'd be surprised. There's some, you know, maybe a stay-at-home parent who's like, yeah, I, would, I love what you do. I would totally answer emails for you. I'll even process billing. Totally agree. Totally yeah. agree. And just sending out an, an, an internal email. Hey, we're hiring, you know, it's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Lisa had a great question here. I think I made a hiring mistake. I hired a very part-time admin back in May who can assist my office manager and sub in for her from time to time when she goes out of town. It's taking her a long time to get comfortable with our systems, which we are still refining. I think I need someone who can be in the studio more often and really shadow my office manager. I know I didn't do the best job training her from the beginning, so I do take accountability for that, but I don't know if I should go ahead and let her go to find the right person or if I should keep working with her. So, hmm. This is a funny one, dude, because we have a client right now who has a sort of a similar the, question. And what's interesting <laughs> is that she told me that that your advice to her was the polar opposite of mine. Nice. So I think, well, this is, this I think we're going to come from very different perspectives on this. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be a great answer. Okay. You go first, because I, I, I think I know what you're going to say. Well, okay, hold on a sec. Actually, Lisa, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into... I'm looking at the question for our listeners on chat, so it's beneficial to me because it's a long one here. It's taking her a long time um, to get comfortable. Um... I need someone who can be in the studio more often and really shadow my office manager. So here's what I'd say. If we know that we've done a poor training, I mean, a poor job in onboarding and training, that's step one. You have to be aware of if your system is kind of sucking anyways, and you just basically like came up short. You're like, I mean, we all know, like we know it, especially with teachers when we're like, oh, wait, we threw that person into the classroom too quickly. They didn't actually get regular weekly check-ins, da, 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 da. 
right? No wonder they're struggling and it's like late October. Um, okay, so we know that we could do a better job of training. You actually are already intuiting what that better job would look like, which is shadowing. So the next thing I would go to say is I'm going back to Daniel's comment around investing in support. Invest in their training. Basically, invest in that person shadowing your office manager and say, hey, I'm going to allocate whatever, three to $500, knowing that all they're doing is shadowing the office manager and helping to um, clarify what the system is and co-create the system and get that system or that checklist down on paper. So if you have a successful version of office manager, then we're going to lean on that person, but we're also going to invest in that in, in your new hire to spend more and more time with that office manager, at least for like two to four weeks. So... Basically, if, if I'm missing some part of it, which is maybe one part of it, and, and I bet you Daniel's going to speak to this, but just guessing on this. But you're saying, wait a minute, actually, this person doesn't really have the skills needed. Like I'm getting the sense that, you know, they're just going to come up short no matter how much training there is. Is that you're sort of nodding because I can see you on the video, is that that's actually closer to it. So the Nate solution of investment, you're like, dude, I don't want to throw like good money after bad. Is that the right phrase? I think it is. Anyways, I don't want to spend more money only to find that I'm right back where I have, you know, started from. Okay. Hmm. If that's the, if that's the uh, actual underlying, um, sort of subtext of this, then I'm pinging it to Daniel to see what he would, how he would respond. Daniel. Well, you make me deliver the bad news. Come on. Yeah, so ahead. what's interesting <laughs> is that our other, uh, our, our other client thought that you, so the, the polar opposite advice we gave, she thought the thing that you said is what I would say. And she thought the thing that I would say is what you would say, but it was actually the opposite. So basically Nate's advice was like, Hire fast, fire fast. And she thought I'd say that. And then my advice was to kind of dig into the nuances and be like, well, and it's kind of actually what Nate said right there. Mm. But Lisa, if what you're indicating is that you just know the writings on the wall, you know, this person isn't the person you want to work with. I'm just going to put an actionable piece of advice out there because it sounds like you already know what you need to do. It can feel bad that you have to let someone go. And that's where I want to give everyone who's listening an actionable piece of advice. And that is, you should never hire someone outright. You should hire them on a 21-day trial period. Yes. Kelly, this goes for you too. <laughs> um, since you're going to be hiring an admin soon. What, I, what I've done, and I got this from a mentor of mine, was just that you bring someone in, you train them really well in the basics... And you give you have a number of jobs and tasks set up for them, and you train them to do them, and then you let them go on. You let you let them go on those tasks during that twenty-one day trial period, and just see how they perform. And they need to know that that's what it is that they're not hired yet. Now, one could imagine. Well, I'm just going to be bringing in a bunch of people on twenty-one day trial periods, and it's going to be uh, you know. What are the odds that I'm just going to be 100% on that? That's why in the hiring process, here's another piece of actual advice, that you actually give them some tasks to show if they fit the culture of, the, of, of your business. For us, what that looked like was I gave someone a fairly complex task 
where they had to write a system for our systems manual. And I made it one that we've already got a system for. So if someone could come in, understand how we build systems, be good enough that they could write one themselves and then give it to us and us look at it, compare it against the system that we already have for that process in the business and it likely being one that they're going to be responsible for. If the system they wrote was really, really good or very, very close after they went through our process on how we do systems inside the business, they're, they're gonna be a good culture fit. And I cannot tell you the number of people where I had them do that. And I was like, oh man, they, do, they don't get this. And, and I just didn't even take them farther than that. Usually by, by the time someone got to the trial, I was pretty much sure I was going to hire them. And in only one case that I actually have to let someone go at the end of that 21-day period. And she was a disaster. So um, like just tons of little mistakes. I, I don't know how she got through, um, but it was like something completely different. It was like the person who showed up to do the job was very, very different from the person I took through that entire hiring process mm. to this day. I still don't know what happened and it wasn't malicious on her part. Um, but yeah. And what's great was the culture was so strong here and she was already working with a couple of other people here that I called a meeting with her and I wasn't excited about having to tell her that we wasn't going to renew. And before I could even let her go, she actually quit. She's like, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to fit in here was essentially what she said. Um, and the two people who were also, she was working with were like, mm -mm, I do not want to work with this person anymore. And she didn't want to work with us. So it ended up working out when your system is so strong that, and the culture is so strong. Sometimes these things have a way of working themselves out on their own. She knew she just couldn't hack it the way that she needed to do things around here. She felt like she was drowning. So I hope that's helpful. Yeah. Can I highlight a couple things you said, Daniel, for Lisa? Sure. Um, first of all, Daniel said, make sure that you give them very specific tasks and then cut them loose to do it. Right. Be careful that they're not always, there's not always a tether to like your office manager to you, that they're actually responsible to do it. So, you know, back to Kelly's, like Kelly's going to bring someone on maybe first to just answer emails for two hours a day or one hour a day. Give them the FAQ sheet. Here's how to answer them. Here's your Gmail account. You have access to all my email. Answer them. But then let them answer them. And then you got to let them do it. Okay. And I don't mean for like 24 or 48 hours. I mean, like a week. The second thing I want to say is that it's vital that they actually have a mentor that they're tra that's training them, that's invested in their success. So coming back and checking in regularly with them. So one of the things I have to do because I'm way too, I'm just like too scattered to actually show up consistently unless I put it on my schedule is when we bring on someone new, one of the things I do is I have like meet and greet lunches with new faculty. It's like, I just got to put that sucker on the schedule, even if it's three months from now, lunch with Natalie, because that way I'm already committed to that person. Nate, do we have time for one more? There's one last question we didn't get to. Yeah, let's do it quick because I'm actually supposed to go to a camp songwriting party. So we'll okay. do one more question and then hit it. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure we got to everyone in the chat. So Roberto wrote, "We have this is an interesting one. We have a piano studio with 90 plus active students and a waiting list of 30. Cool. We are only two at the moment. My wife is the teacher and mastermind behind the magic in our studio. 
and I'm in charge of the operations. We are at the VAT threshold. So that's a European tax, the value added tax. If we bring in one more student, we would have to start paying an additional 20% in VAT. We believe it may be hard to transfer this cost to the students in one go, and we fear the negative impact on our business if we went that way. My wife is also completely booked with students, so bringing in more students is almost impossible. If we hired two more teachers, their cost plus the added VAT would require that we go from 90 to 250 students just to keep the same profit we have now. Question, how would you look at this challenge and what would you and what would you suggest we explore? So I'm going to start here and say, first off, I really appreciate that you have done the model so that you know the number of students you need to get to. The, the, the amount of preparation, like I, I work with people who are considering coaching or, you know, teachers just email me or I'll jump on a call with them. And they don't even have a basic model built out of what what level they need to be at for profit or, or, or these sorts of things. So good, good job for you there. That's the first thing. Second, I would not, um, this might sound a little, this might sound like it's coming a little bit out of left field because the way this question is framed, it kind of implies a certain kind of answer, but I'm just going to say this straight up. It might not damage your business the way that you imagine it will for you just to raise your rates by 20%. The largest rate raise I ever did was 23% in one go. And I let people know six months in advance that it was coming. I didn't lose a single student from it. That might be the solution to your problem. Now, there might be, you know, legal angle solutions to your problems. There might be other things that, that you know, to take into consideration. Um, I, I would say that one way that you could compensate for this would be uh, to have higher margins and, again, uh, group lessons are a great way to raise your margins in your studio. Um, you know, again, not to not to belabor a point, but for studios running Piano Express from grouplessons.com, um, depending on the model which you choose to run it, there is sometimes a, a uh, staff cost reduction of 92%, leading people to, to triple their margins uh, in under a year by switching over to that system, just because the student-teacher ratio is so favorable to the owner while maintaining the high educational standards. So group lessons is a possible solution. Raising rates is a possible solution. Um, not having to hire additional staff but be able to take on those extra students is certainly a possible solution. Those are the things that kind of jump out at me directly. Nate, anything you want to add in there? Yeah, I'm just going to piggyback off what you said is love your, I love where you went, which was a price increase right away. And I understand why everyone's hesitant about doing a 20% price increase, but I want to just present the opportunity here with that. Number one, you don't have to do a, a price increase in one fell swoop. You can do it over, say, the course of two years, knowing that you have a long-term strategic opportunity, which is to cover that VAT by bringing up, by increasing inventory by bringing on a new teacher. So in the short term, maybe you do 10% one year, 10% the second year, but you know that you're going to increase your volume. I.e., you know, like you said, you need to go from 95 to 250. That 250 is based on having your, I'm assuming based on having the price you have now. But I love your idea, Daniel, of just going straight for a price increase. Also, yeah, your notion of like, hey, you can do more with, um, the space you have, the teachers you have through group opportunities is a great thought. The next thing I would say um, is that whenever I make these forecasts, which clearly you're a numbers person because you're coming at it with a lot of thought, is I always question my assumptions. Like you make your spreadsheet and then you're like, okay, wait, do I really have to go all the way to 250? 
What does it look like at 150? What does it look like at 200? Am I missing some opportunities, which is specifically what Daniel's speaking to? So question your assumptions, take a look at the forecast, um, and make sure you look at the forecast a few times and then do what I oftentimes did, especially when I was dealing with a, a larger strategic growth issue, which is I brought in an outside set of eyes. So like I have a friend who worked for a billion dollar hedge fund as a CFO and I'd just be like, dude, can I buy you a beer and have you look at my spreadsheets for an hour? You know, go to your network right now with your assumptions and just show them, tee up your question, which is beautiful, and then say, uh, what questions am I not asking? And do you see anything that I don't see? What's the story you see? Because that's the whole ticket with a spreadsheet if it's doing its job, is it's just telling a clear story to anybody who looks at it who's interested in that kind of thing, right? So that's the ticket there, um, Roberto, is get a couple of other friends on board who love to look at numbers like you may and say, hey, I'm actually seeing a different story because there's always going to be another angle on this. Um, Daniel, that's all I got on that one, though. I love it. It's a great question. I'm, I can't wait to hear what the solution is. Roberto, you got to let us know in a year or two how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any follow-up to that, Roberto? Uh, no, two comments. One, thank you so much, guys. I, I really love uh, following you. Uh, this, we've got to this stage thanks to your uh, podcast, uh, Daniel, mm. and all the comments Nate is sharing here. So it's amazing to follow you guys. And second, yes, um, uh, having this model of, of the business model uh, has helped us to, to forecast in one way, but I appreciate your point, Nate. Uh, I need to, to check my, my assumptions, but also um, there is a bit of a limiting belief perhaps on our side, like uh, I, uh, are we worth the money we want to charge and uh, mm, yes. make the business continue? And the second thing that is ringing in my head is a comment from uh, an accountant, a uh, friend of ours. She asked, but are you really going to have 250 students in that little town where you live? So it, it, she's questioning the size of our market. And uh, yeah, so up to you guys. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I love that's precisely the perspective you want. You want to get a two or three of those alternate perspectives because they're going to raise questions that you may not be raising, which is like, do you even have, back to Daniel's initial comment or um, Zach's around opening second locations, yeah, do you actually have enough leads that you can convert to that growth? Yeah. And I'm so glad that, Roberto, you brought up the idea of it being a limiting belief. I'm just going to tell a brief story here. Earlier in this podcast, I talked about Justice Map. I actually shared that with a client because they were convinced that there weren't as many people in their new location. They'd move 500 miles across the country. And they had a certain belief in their mind about how many people were in this location versus how many people were where they came from. And they had this thought, like, I'm just not going to be as successful here. And when we actually dug into the data, there were just as many kids in their new area and just as much population as in their old area. It just didn't seem that way. And so actually, again, digging into the numbers, I think, can be so helpful. And I just want to encourage everyone who's listening. Numbers and data and measurement and tracking can't and won't solve all your problems. But they'll solve a lot of them. 
<laughs> and and um, it, this is why I kind of champion this position so much on this podcast um, because. It- yeah, Nate, it's, you you have something to say. No, there. I Go just ahead. I think they raise they get you to raise better questions. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I I mean I've said this before, but I'm too much of a numbers wonk. So there's too many spreadsheets like that I could pull up right now, Roberto, around your forecasting. And so it took it took a friend to be like, dude, you don't need to keep looking at that, but you do need to consistently look at it. And so consistently looking at the measurements, as Daniel puts puts it helps me when I'm asked different questions. Um, and I, I, by different, I mean, hopefully better ones, because that's all we're actually doing as owners and founders to try to develop, you know, develop this entity is we're just regularly looking at what's happening under the roof of our school and saying, huh, what could be different? And sometimes we're looking at the people and sometimes we're looking at the measurements, like Daniel says. And and um, both of those stories, it's really important to have the people and the anecdotes and the stories, but it's also really important, as Daniel said, to have the data. I would say, Daniel, wouldn't you agree that a lot of people come with stories to us, not enough people come with data to us? Hey, it's Nate again. You know, every year at Brooklyn Music Factory, we get dozens and dozens of great reviews from our families. And you want to know how? Because we ask them. And they're happy to leave a review because of the positive impact that we've made on them. And so now I have a simple ask for you. If this podcast, the 7FMS podcast, was helpful to you, would you mind leaving a review for Daniel and I? And please... Share the podcast with another music school owner that you think might benefit. It's one of the best ways that you can support us. We appreciate it.